Hello, Modern War listeners. This is Captain Jake Moraldi. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Dr. Andrew Basevich, a retired colonel and professor at Boston University, about his new book, America's War for the Greater Middle East. We'll talk to him about the larger war in the Middle East over the past 30 years and how to develop complex thinkers who are well-equipped to handle the challenges and difficulties presented by modern war. As always, the views expressed in this podcast are the opinions of the respective participants and are not the official position of the United States government. This is the Modern War Institute podcast. All right. Well, Dr. Basevich, good uh, to have you on the podcast today. I want to jump right in sort of talking about your recent book, uh, and you outline or cover a pretty significant chunk of Middle East history, probably over the last century. Can you sort of outline what the major themes you were talking about were? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the, the book's called America's War for the Greater Middle East, and the subtitle of the book is A Military History. Now, I think the subtitle is very, very important uh, in this context because uh, my aim in writing the book was to uh, construct a narrative uh, that recounts U.S. military interventions uh, in the Islamic world since 1980. And I chose 1980 as the start point for the narrative for a very important reason. And the reason is that's the year that President Jimmy Carter promulgated what we have subsequently come to call the Carter Doctrine. And the Carter Doctrine uh, was a statement uh, designating the Persian Gulf a U.S. vital national security interest in that speech, in that State of the Union address of January 1980, Carter emphasized that when he said vital U.S. national security interest, he meant that the Persian Gulf was uh, now designated a place that we viewed as worth fighting for. And the reason it's important to recall that is that prior to 1980, it wasn't a place uh, we thought we should fight for, would fight for, or were prepared to fight for. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to 1980, U.S. military involvement uh, in, in that region was minimal. Prior to 1980, we were certainly uh, geared up to fight for Western Europe, and we were certainly geared up to fight in East Asia, had indeed fought two wars in East Asia since 1945, mm-hmm. one in Korea, one in Vietnam. And so now uh, we now we added this third region of the world, and indeed the statement, Carter's Doctrine, Uh, initiated the militarization of U.S. policy, touched off what has come to be a seemingly endless series of interventions, large and small, uh, some brief, some protracted, not simply in the Persian Gulf, but in a a wider region that I refer to as the war for the greater Middle East. And and it, it, it seems to me that since this enterprise has been going on now for Closing in on on four decades, it was time for us to take account, take have an accounting of what U.S. military efforts had achieved, hadn't achieved, at what cost, uh, so we can begin to draw some judgments about whether the policies undertaken pursuant to the Carter Doctrine actually make sense. You mentioned the uh, the militarization of our foreign policy. Can you sort of elaborate on what you mean by by that exactly? I mean that prior to 1980, uh, the Pentagon uh, 
had no plans uh, to intervene uh, in places like Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, etc., etc. There was no major command uh, designated uh, to lay the groundwork, to do the war planning necessary for interventions in those kinds of places. And all of that changes beginning in 1980. Carter creates the Joint Rapid Deployment Task Force, but that's that's uh, rather quickly superseded by United States Central Command. And, and all of a sudden, we've got lots of plans to intervene, lots of preparations being done, whether we're talking about exercises or overflight rights or, or access to, uh, uh, to, to ports uh, and airfields. We've got prepositioned materiel in places like Diego Garcia and, indeed, what follows is a long series of, no kidding, real live armed interventions for a variety of purposes. What are the concerns that you have? I know that you've voiced some of them in your book. What are the concerns you have about the militarization of foreign policy? What are the, the impacts of that militarization? Well, specifically in this region, my concern is it's not working. That is to say, what, however we define U.S. objectives, and, and, and the definition of U.S. objectives has has certainly varied widely uh, between 1980 and and the present moment. It's hard to, it's hard for me to understand how anybody uh, could argue that we uh, that we have achieved those objectives. Indeed, I think it, you'd be hard pressed to make an argument that we're coming closer to achieving our objectives. In in, in the sort of the most blunt terms, uh, the the region is in more of a mess today than it was back in 1980 when Carter decided we needed to prepare ourselves to intervene there. So the, the, the war for the greater Middle East uh, has been counterproductive. It's also been exceedingly uh, costly uh, for us and for others. Uh, and I would say that it's time for us to deem this enterprise a failure. That is to say that searching for a, a solution to whatever it is that ails this part of the world by uh, by further application of U.S. military uh, power uh, seems unlikely to uh, to to yield any conclusive success, and therefore the demilitarization of U.S. policy is something that uh, we ought to at least examine. So the question I have about that is: is the the failure to meet whatever our stated objectives are in the Middle East as a as a region? Does that stem from a systemic issue caused by the militarization of foreign policy, or is it just a simple fact that the military and the militarization of foreign policy is not the right tool to achieve those objectives? Well, I think that's a good question. I think that there's no simple answer, but uh, it, it, it seems clear to me, it seemed clear to me in writing this book that uh, at the outset of this war for the greater Middle East, those charged with uh, its uh, its management uh, had a it had a fundamentally unsatisfactory understanding of the context of, of this part of the world. Um, the the first commanders of CENTCOM. I'll give you an example here. The first commanders of CENTCOM after after they began ginning up the war. You know the first the first major CENTCOM war plan uh, was a was a was a plan to intervene in Iran. During the Iran-Iraq War, mm-hmm. in order to to prevent a Soviet offensive from overrunning Iran 
and threatening Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the fact is, no such offensive was going to occur. It was not. It was not. It was not plausible. I mean, imagine U.S. forces today. Uh, were, were they to uh, a major deployment to Saudi Arabia, attacking through Iran from Saudi Arabia into Afghanistan? Uh, you know, planners in the Pentagon would would reject it out of hand. But right. somehow, whether we imagine in the 1980s uh, that the that the Soviets Soviets were going to do that, and when you when you look at the at the planning that was done by CENTCOM, we're, we're talking now early to mid 1980s. When, when the Soviet threat was the, was the, was the driver, they approached the problem as kind of a, of, of a problem of time and space. You know, how, 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 how far, how, what would it take to deploy and sustain U.S. forces, uh, into, uh, a mountain range in, in Western Iran? Uh, how many ships, how many, how many in those days uh, C-141 uh, sorties? Uh, how, many, how many divisions could be moved? Uh, there was no awareness, zero, none, about any of the historical, religious, sectarian uh, complexities of, of sending U.S. forces into the region, complexities of the sort that today, of course, after our painful experience of the past 30-some years, uh, that, that, that I imagine members of the officer corps are acutely sensitive to. So, so we, one of the reasons that we have failed is because we began in, in an extreme bout of stupidity. Uh, that said, it would be wrong, uh, and misleading to say that the war for the greater Middle East has failed simply because the Americans in charge uh, d- didn't know what they were doing. Uh, it, I think it, you have to, uh, appreciate the, the extent to which really the problem, whatever the problem is, and I think really the problem probably can be described as uh, as, a, as a crisis within Islam, a, uh, a, a difficulty that some Muslims have with trying to reconcile faith with modernity, uh, the, the problem simply does not uh, avail itself uh, to a military solution. So it was a... Uh, I think it was a, it, it was a, 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 a probably a failed proposition the day it, uh, it it began. Okay, so to paraphrase a little bit, so what you're saying is it's sort of a combination of both. It's uh, the military at the time when the Carter Doctrine went into effect was not didn't have the mental framework to conduct operations in the way that it needed to to do the job, and it just ended well, up but, but get- not, not not just the military leadership, but the civilian leadership as well. Okay. And, and frankly, not simply back in the 1980s, but much further. I mean, just just you know, remember uh, the expectations of the George W. Bush administration uh, at the time of the beginning of the Iraq War of 2003-2011. Uh, the incredibly naive expectations on the part of the small number of people around President Bush who promoted this war, the naive expectations that somehow the introduction of U.S. forces into Iraq was going to quickly yield the transformation of Iraq into some sort of a sort of liberal, sort of democratic, uh, pro-American uh, government. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, in retrospect, that was not in the cards. Uh, it's shocking, I think, uh, at, at from where we are right now to to contemplate uh, the the arrogance and the hubris and the naivete of the American policymakers who launched that war. 
I'm sure you have some touch points in in the force today. Do you feel like we've learned our lesson at all or that policymakers have learned their lesson at all in that regard? I don't have any uh, serious contacts in the force. I've been out of the Army longer than I was in the Army. I, I, I do get emails from time to time from serving officers, not not of my acquaintance, who, who say they've read something that I've written and who you know, generally say, hey, I agree with you. Uh, and so that gives me uh, some, this is a self-selected group, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but it gives me some some hope uh, that there is uh, uh, some critical thinking ongoing in, within the officer corps uh, to, to uh, examine uh, in a detached way uh, what, what our policies in the region have produced. And let me emphasize, it's not simply a matter of, 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 of looking for lessons learned with regard to Iraq. I think it's, it's looking for lessons to learn with regard to our efforts going all the way back to the 1980s. So you mentioned that it's a, sele- a self-selected group of people in the force that you've interacted with. And yes, I, know- I mean, these are people who just send me emails that, yep. you know, out, of, out of the blue. I don't, I don't ask people to send me emails. Right. Well, the the reason I ask is because again, that's I mean, obviously within the force there are different cohorts of officers that that understand things differently and and think differently based on their experiences and where they've where they've been. And the question I wanted to ask is, given our mandate here at West Point to produce military officers, given the need to have a degree in the officer corps not a degree, a a significant level of critical thinking and creative thinking in the officer corps, is there a way that we can help educate officers to help them develop that capability so that there's more officers within that cohort of critical thinkers and and thinkers that are looking beyond the basic solution or the, the surface level answer to a problem? Well, that's a great question, and I'm not sure that I have any uh, any useful uh, answer. Nope. I mean, in my own days as a cadet, and even as a as a younger officer attending uh, army schools, uh, uh, if there was an effort made to inculcate a capacity for critical thought, I sure I certainly didn't notice it, mm-hmm. uh, and. And, and I think that, you know, there's a problem here. And the problem is that uh, you know, a serving officer is a servant of the state. Uh, a serving officer is an instrument of, of, of the state's purposes. Mm-hmm. And a serving officer doesn't decide what those purposes are. Our, our system... Uh, uh, founded on, to some degree, founded on the principle of civilian control uh, says that when an officer is asked for advice, he or she should render it. Uh, but when a decision is made, then the, the the professional obligation of the officer is to is to implement the decision. I, I know when I say this to you, you say, "Of course, of course, that's the way it's that's the way it's supposed to be." And yet, uh, we, we need uh, a a cohort of people. Once they, those who do ultimately achieve positions of responsibility uh, within the military, the three stars, the four stars, we, we, we want them uh, to reach that level uh, and have uh, 
some capacity for individual thought. And the only thing I can think to say, and I certainly didn't manifest this myself when I was a younger officer, is in a, you almost have to have a uh, be of two minds. You know, half your mind, half your mind is 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 that of a of a young subaltern uh, attempting to master the the specifics of your branch or specialty. Mm-hmm. And, and doing what you're told to do as best you can. And yet at the same time, you have, in the other half of your mind, uh, you're able to say, does this make sense? What's going on here? What's the context? How do, how do we get into this situation? What are the implications? Uh, so even as you are a uh, oil, uh, uh, military professional, simultaneously, you're trying to nurture uh, the intellectual ability uh, to to ask first order questions, to 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 avoid simply being you know, uh, propagandized and 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 buying into uh, the uh, the omnipresent socialization. Uh, with at West Point, at least in my day, mm-hmm. uh, and and within the officer corps that says this is this is this is our value system. This is the way we all think. This is the this is what we're supposed to do. Uh, I think it's very very difficult to sort of have that that split sort of vision, and I think it's especially difficult to do for for younger younger people. Uh, again, certainly when I was. A cadet, or when I was a young officer in my twenties, uh, I, 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 I didn't manifest any of that, uh, that essential quality. Yeah, well, the, the reason I ask is because we we have discussions here fairly often about how and when critical thinking should start. You know, like you said, is it something that when a when an officer becomes a, a general officer? Then they start to develop that that capacity, or is it something right. that needs to be fostered throughout their their military career? And, and a little I think too, little, little, little too late. Yeah, and that's and well, that's I mean, the thinking. And at I, this point. I would say, I mean, how, how, how as a practical matter, I think there are things you can do to begin to develop that capacity. And one of them, of course, is to read uh, uh, widely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, I think I think you know, in a way, the first uh, glimmer of critical. A capacity for critical thinking, in my view, came when I came back from Vietnam, and I was as mystified by what we were doing uh, as as most people were, and I don't recall exactly why, but I I began to read extensively in the French experience, you know, the French Indochina War that ended in 1954, uh, and 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 I think that doing that. Uh, it was it, it was it, it was a an entree into coming to a deeper understanding of our Vietnam War by uh, e- examining under uh, coming to understand uh, the grotesque failures of the French in the in in, in the prior war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 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 I think reading. I'm a historian, so I got a bias towards history. I think reading history. Uh, um, is 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 crucial, and of course that becomes more difficult to do in the in the digital age because uh, books uh, increasingly seem to fall out of favor, particularly among uh, your 
people in your generation. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I think you can do is is to write. I mean, I, I began writing for military journals uh, as a young captain, uh, and I, I know uh, in 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 retrospect I had an exaggerated sense of the influence uh, that military journals have on thinking within the officer corps. Uh, I think there's a there's an old fiction somehow that you know this is where ideas are being generated and they're being vetted. I think that's all uh, nonsense. I don't, uh, my sense is that that uh, military professional journals, as a practical matter, probably have close to zero uh, influence. That said, uh, the contributors to those journals who undergo the discipline of developing an argument, uh, they benefit uh, intellectually uh, from their contributions, even if the contribution itself has has a, has a negligible uh, influence on anybody else. So I think, I mean, reading and then writing, uh, beginning at, a, at an early age, probably provide the best ways to begin uh, developing a capacity to think critically. Great. Well, I think that's all I have for you. I really appreciate you taking the time, and thank you very much. Okay, good luck to you. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not reflect the official position of the United States government. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi, and I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth conversations on war, policy, and leadership. 